Hello and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and on today's episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Miguel de la Torre, world-renowned ethicist and leading liberation theologian, professor over at Iliff School of Theology and author of the most recent book, The Politics of Jesus, A Political Theology. We'll be speaking to Dr. Torre today about para yoder, this idea that Jesus screws with the system. Hardcore stuff that will challenge you. Also, I was talking to him about the theology of hopelessness. But don't lose hope. This is a fantastic episode that will challenge you. And if you have any comments, if you have any remarks, if, if something is just an aha moment for you or you disagree with something, you can always comment and you can email me, ryan at brewtheology.org. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. Google Play, Pocket Casts, and Podbean. Subscribe. Give us a really cool rating. We would love that. Share that Hopalicious Brew on social media. We have social media handles at Instagram and Facebook, Brew Theology, along with Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. And speaking of things online, I'd love to turn your attention to our website, brewtheology.org. At this point, it may be up and running. I don't know. When we launch this episode, my wife and I may have our second kid. Our world's going to go crazy upside down. If the website is ready, uh, you can check that out right now. There's going to be different levels of partnership, whether you're an individual, you're part of of a community, or you're an organization or a church. There are affiliated and non-affiliated partnerships. There's different levels of sponsorship. Uh, And uh, if you're a brewery, if you're an artist, there's so many different ways for you to get involved in this Brew Theology Alliance. And it's uh, it's a very exciting process. It's taken us a while to kind of get going. There's so many moving parts parts to this. Uh, There's some curriculum as well. If you just want to use some of our curriculum, you can purchase that in different packages. There's also a leader guide if you want to start up a brew theology in your area and you want the leader guide. And if you want to talk to Janelle um, or myself, you can do that. Uh, Just make sure that you email us. Janelle's email is janelle at brew theology. If you want some cool swag, you can do that. We've always got a cool swag campaign, t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts. There's also a coffee and tea logo if you would like one of those as well. Just email me about that. And last but not least, today I am drinking some delicious beer. I mean, this is fantastic stuff. Some of my uh, my new friends and favorites from Denver, Colorado, Seedstock Brewing Company. Check them out over on Colfax if you're in town. I'm drinking uh, two different beers. Uh, Ron, Ron was so great, man. Uh, he, uh, I was like, I don't know which one I you know, want to drink today. And he's like, well, here, here's, here's the IPA and here's the autumn beer. The autumn beer is the, the Herbst beer. Kind of hard to say, Herbst beer. It is a German autumn beer. It's got this color autumn amber kind of thing going. Uh, it's crisp. It's got this little malty aroma. It's got this a little bit of slight honey, kind of a caramel flavor with this amazing clean fall finish let me tell you what it pairs well with a comfortable sweatshirt Mm mm-hmm awesome next is this is a specialty it's the double ipa this is a big boy it's at nine percent it's got this reddish copper color it's bright hoppy has a citrus aroma with a subtle earthiness to it medium mouthfeel man it's got a great balance of malt and hops it doesn't like leave you thinking wow this is super boozy 
but it does got a little kick at a 9%, so it pairs well with a pretty hard day. Make sure if you're in Denver, check out Seatstock Brewing Company. We love them. And make sure you always, my friends, and I say always, share that Hopalicious brew. All right, welcome everybody. Today we have uh, Dr. Miguel De La Torre with us. And who else do we have? I'm Kyle, um, Kyle Ramsey Sunder. I'm drinking a double IPA. Ryan would know where that's from. I Seedstock Brewing Company. Seedstock Brewing yeah. Company. I'm, and I'm Liz Wolfert, and um, I'm not drinking anything fancy today. I'm self-medicating with herbal tonics to try to get over whatever illness is going around. And I'm drinking what Kyle's drinking, and later we'll have the Herbst beer. It's like an autumn ale from Seedstock, if we want to keep talking. So we we're here tonight not to drink, but uh, to interview uh, Dr. Miguel, and so thankful that you're here. Tomorrow night, like we said, we're going to be talking about liberation theology in the pub, but tonight is going to be a special night, so I know Kyle's one of your students, so this is a great opportunity for all of us, and specifically for Kyle and his studies. Uh, but I think the world needs to hear more of what um, of what's going on in your world, but before we get into the theology, let's talk about your heritage. Okay. How, where did you Who grow up? You? And, yeah. yeah. Um, I was born in uh, Cuba before the revolution. So I think I just dated myself. Um, we came to the United States as refugees. Uh, grew up in New York City, um, in the slums of New York. Um, went to a Catholic uh, school um, during the day, and in the evening I practiced Santeria. That was the religion of my family. So we had these two different religions. Uh, moved to Miami in my teens when I became a Southern Baptist for very deep theological reason. Um, the girl I wanted to go out with would only go out with me if I went to church with her on Sunday. Nice. And she was worth walking down the aisle and giving my heart to Jesus. And that's very serious in that world. <laughs> it is. So, um, you know, I've, um, I ended up going to Southern Baptist, well, I had my own company for many years, a real estate company. Um, I was a right-wing um, conservative, uh, ran for for the Florida House of Representatives as the most conservative member um, on the part in, the, in that election year. Uh, went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for the idea of merging religion and politics and saving America for Jesus. Um, but while I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as the seminary became more fundamentalist, um, I couldn't find any of the theology classes really speaking to me. So I went to the library and decided to pick out every book that had a Latino name on it, not knowing who Gustavo Gutierrez was, not knowing who Bonino, uh, um, Bonino was or Boff. And while the seminary became fundamentalist, I became a liberation theologian and realized that no Southern Baptist church was ever going to hire me um, when I finished. So I did what every unemployed uh, student does, I went ahead and got my PhD. And the next thing I know, I'm teaching uh, ethics at, uh, um, at, at ILIF. But before ILIF, I taught ethics at Hope College, where I in wrote Michigan. A, in Michigan. Yeah. Yes, in Holland, Michigan, where the motto is, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And so I wasn't much there. Um, I wrote an article making fun of uh, James Dobson and ended up losing my tenured position oh my for goodness. that. Um, and then I left School of Theology says, that's the kind of person we want, and they ended up hiring me as their ethicist. And I've been there now for 12 years. This year will be my 12th year. Cool. 
Fascinating. Yeah. So can you talk about uh, the term liberation theology for yeah. some of our listeners who don't know? Yeah. Uh, kind of define that, and then I do want to talk more about your so-called conversion experience. Okay. Um, liberation theology um, begins, well, some would say it began centuries ago. But um, the modern understanding of it kind of begins during the 60s when you have military dictatorships throughout Latin America. You have Vatican II, the church, a Catholic church is opening up, um, you know, open up the windows to let some fresh air in and a hurricane blows through. Um, the delegates from Latin America who went to Vatican II return and they begin to say, how do we implement the teachings of Vatican II in an atmosphere of, of military brutality and dictatorships. And they began um, what they term liberation theology, which is uh, focus on the poorest of the poor um, and, and making a preferential option for them. Um, that Those ideas began to spread um, and, and not chronologically spread, because in the United States you had similar conversation going on in the black community through black theology. You had feminist movements that also were in conversation. Um, you have the Latinx here in the United States. So throughout the world you have these, um, these movements of doing theology from the perspective of the poorest of the poor. And, and you kind of call this all liberation theology. Um, it's a modernity project, obviously, um, looking for creating a just society on earth. Um, then there are some of us who are liberationist thinkers, but approach it from a more post-colonial, uh, critical thinking of post-modernity perspective, and, and, and kind of move it in a little bit of a different direction, which I think is where this conversation, um, not our particular conversation, but the dialogue of liberation theology seems to be moving towards. So what shifted in your brain when you started reading these these Latino authors who yeah. were espousing this? Like, what what was the shift there? What was that like? Well, when I was, um, you know, I was a successful businessman in Miami. Um, I had my own company, had about 100 agents working for me. So I bought into the mythology that if you work hard, you could pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you could make something of yourself. Um, what I did not really appreciate is that in Miami, uh, the Cubans, I'm Cuban, basically control the economic and political structures of the city. So it was easier for me mm -hmm. to yeah. go ahead and be successful. Mm -hmm. But when I went to seminary and I started reading the works of Gutierrez, of Bonino, of Boff, of Miranda, of all those folks, um, it reconnected me with the poverty of my growing up. And also when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, I faced unbelievable racism. And, and that was a consciousness-raising moment for me. Because mm -hmm. I figured if you work hard, if you, if you do what you're supposed to do, everyone would treat you the same and you could succeed. But I had two small babies. I mean, they were infants. And you have to remember, I, I ran for public office. I had my own company. I had a master's in public administration. And the only job I could find was a stereotypical janitor at a church. And I began to realize that it doesn't matter how many degrees I have, it doesn't matter how I present myself, at the end of the day, I wasn't given the opportunities. And that began to radicalize me as I saw that I couldn't bring food to feed my children. It's a super powerful story. 
All right, so so I and I, this is new to me. So I'm a non-Christian, non-theologian, and so I was really interested in, in some of the articles that you had written. And um, here too, they talked about one of our questions here is talking about um, your discussion of the ethics of parahodar um, in your book, The Politics of Jesus. Um, so talk a little bit about that. You you encapsulate the phrase. Poder as being a very powerful notion, a very disrupting notion. So can you talk about that a little bit? I, I will. Um, but I'm going to, if you don't okay, mind, sure. I want to begin Please. by talking a little bit about hopelessness. Yeah, let's do it. Because about that. hopelessness helps us understand why we move towards that ethics. Great. Yeah, okay. let's, let's start there. So I'm just about, no, not just about, I just finished a book um, called Embracing Hopelessness. And, and I haven't found a publisher yet. I'm, I'm, I'm going to begin making some phone calls. But what the book argues is that there, and again, here comes the critical thinking, there is no history. And what I mean by that is that history becomes a construct to justify whatever those in power believe um, history should be to justify their power. Um, And in the book, I begin by looking at North Korean history and, and, and how... Uh, the, the, the Kim dynasty were, you know, basically, um, according to the history books, um, single-handedly defeated the Japanese um, colonizers without the help of the Russians, and that they won the war against South Korea during the Korean conflict. So you, you have this history that doesn't match up with the rest of what the world thinks history occurred. And then from there, I jumped to Texas, because Texas just came out with a textbook about Hispanics in where it talks about um, Hispanics being anti-social, anti-American, we don't want to give up our culture, uh, confuses um, other Latin Americans for Mexican-Americans. I mean, it's really a mess. But this now is going to be the history taught to children. Um, So whatever history is, we just create it. Now, Hegel tells us that history is a dialectical movement that moves us towards a utopian vision. Um, And I'm saying, no, it doesn't. Um, I'm more listening to Foucault, that history could um, be great today, we could have a great society which could be followed by another Nazi regime, that could be followed by the rise of a KKK, that could be followed by another Enlightened Age. So, so there is no rhyme or reason to history. Right. We're not progressing. We're not progressing. Well, we could progress. We could take five steps forward, but then we'll take six steps back, and then we'll take a step forward, and then later we take no steps. Right. So, so history just happens. Right. It, yeah. And the idea of hopelessness, too, I mean, it seems like it's tying into your own story, too, because there's this narrative, right, mm-hmm. that you work hard yeah. and you get someplace and right. there is something better on the other side of the rainbow and that the um, systems, if, I don't know what you call them, systems of oppression or mass stereotyping, mass prejudice right. was disrupting that Absolutely. So, so the general pro- progress, yeah. Sorry. So politically speaking, so then you have communism on one end, right, and then capitalism on the mm-hmm. other and so both are these salvation stories. Exactly. These narratives. Oh, yeah. I thought that, that was really interesting, yeah. And so talk more about that. Definitely. So if I'm, if I'm debunking and rejecting dialectical history per Hegel, the next step is to reject salvation history. And by salvation history, I'm not t- talking about the Christian story. I'm also talking about our modernity story. So capitalism is a salvation history that at the end, everyone's going to be rich. We're going to lift up. Uh, the tide's going to um, lift all boats. Um, Said so you have capitalism. At the end, we're going to, um, you know, the the, um, the proletarian is going to go work in the, in the in the farm, 
in the morning and in the afternoon is going to go ahead and have some tea and read some philosophy and take a walk. And, you know, it's going to be a utopian society. So I'm rejecting all utopias. And in that, I'm also bringing into question salvation history. Because the only reason we could we can make sense of our lives, that it's all going to work out, is if we all get to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love heaven. I already got my mansion picked out. That's all cool. <laughs> but just in case there isn't a heaven, you know, how do we live our lives here? And also, I don't want to live my life looking towards the future when there's so much to do in the present. It reminds me a lot of the stuff I read at um, the Pema Chodron writes, mm-hmm. The Wisdom of No Escape. Yes. If you stop wishing for something else and just embrace the, uh, the beauty and pain that comes in the present moment, that can be a very liberating notion. Right. So do you feel like um, that notion of liberation, that is there more to the liberation of liberation theology besides just, um, say, liberation from oppression or oppressive mm-hmm. systems? There's some of that? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, in, in classical liberation theology, it's liberation from the structures of oppression. And for Latin America, it's specifically um, economic oppression. Okay. But what I'm, what I'm arguing for is, is it's a deeper form of liberation. And that is, rather than being liberated from economic structures, because the economic structures have won. Neoliberalism has won. Mm-hmm. The e- global economic structures are not going to end in my lifetime and probably my children's lifetime or my great-grandchildren's lifetime. And, and here's where the hopelessness committed. So if I'm not going to be liberated from these economic structures, what I am liberated from is a, is a, is a messiah complex that somehow is up to me to bring about that liberation. Uh, uh-huh. So, for example, how long do most um, social workers last? Uh, or even pastors, for that matter. You know, it's like, you know, five, six, seven years is the max. Mm-hmm. The reason being, they actually believe they could change the world. Mm-hmm. They don't change the world. They start getting burned out. What I'm peddling <laughs> is embracing that you're not going to change the world, that it's going to be hopeless, that things are probably going to get worse. Because what hope becomes is a middle-class privilege that allows me to, if I keep my head down, if I don't make eye contact, I might be able to survive whatever's happening. But for those who are truly oppressed, they have absolutely nothing to lose. And therefore, if they embrace the hopelessness, then if they have nothing to lose, that's when radical change can actually occur. So in in the book I'm finishing, I have one chapter on Dachau. And when you enter Dachau, there was that sign, work will make you free. Work did not make you free, you know. But as long as I believed it, I didn't rebel in, in the hopes that I might make it. So here's where that hopelessness comes in. I, I find hopelessness to, to really keep people oppressed more than anything else. Yeah, hopefulness. Hope, yeah, yeah hopefulness. hopefulness. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Hopefulness yeah. keeps people oppressed. Thank you. No. And, and the reason I came across this, I took a group of students to... Um, to Cuenavaca, Mexico, where we visited the squatter villages by the train tracks to begin to understand, you know, the, the impact of neoliberalism upon uh, two-third world nations. And afterwards, one of my students said, you know, I know it was horrible, but when I looked in the eyes of the little girl, I saw the hope in her eyes. And my reaction was, I, I don't know what you saw in her eyes, but in another four or five years, she's going to be turning tricks to put food on the table or be trapped in an abusive family, marriage, 
there is no hope for her. You know, but by you claiming hope, you could wash your hands from being involved in this tragedy because you leave it to Jesus because there's hope. And so, so my rebellion against hope and my embracing of hopelessness is really a cold eye gaze at reality so that we can actually bring about change. Mm. Start with what is. Right. Okay. Without the illusions that it's all going to work out in the end. Mm. Now, it may, but more likely it will not. So you, I'm sure you all heard the, the sermons about the little girl throwing the um, starfishes back into the ocean. And the grumpy old man says, you can't throw them more in. And she goes, well, I'll, I'll make a difference in this one's life and throws it back in. Well, I'm the grumpy old man <laughs> who has my eyes on the thousands and thousands of dead bodies on the seashore that no one is willing to deal with. And yes, we could save one. But that doesn't excuse all those thousands of dead bodies. Yeah, this this is suddenly taking me back even to the two years that my wife and I spent in Dominica, not to be confused with uh, the other, you know, Dominica. And a a third world country, beautiful island, but we would ask these kids, and this was my naive, western, middle, upper class, white person coming out, looking back at what was I thinking, and I would sit them down with my passionate youth pastor self, and I would say, what are your hopes, what are your dreams, what are your aspirations, and I would get deer in the headlights. (laughs) Nobody had ever asked them that. And then the more I thought about it, I go, even if they had any, is there really any hope in this country? Because right. I'm thinking like a Westerner. Right. You know? that, yeah. That you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but if they don't have boots, yeah. how do you do that? Exactly. So now I can ask you a question yes, about please. the Let's ethics of Horeb. So, so the question is, if there is no hope, if I'm right, then what becomes the ethical response to that? Correct, yeah. And for me, the ethical response, it's not something that I'm inventing or I'm coming up with. Rather, it's what I think the oppressed of the world are already doing. Yeah. So basically, what I'm trying to do is just put words to it. Right. And, 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 and the words that I chose was Joren. Now, for those um, who are listening who do not know Spanish... I butchered the word earlier in the yeah. intro, so I apologize. <laughs> Joren is one of those words you never use in polite conversation. It's similar to a certain four-letter word that begins with F. Um, and, and what I'm asking for is that when there is no chance of survival, when all is lost, the most you can do is screw with the systems. Not screw the systems, but screw with the systems. Mess with things. Yes. Yep. This is Jesus overturning the tables of the bankers at the temple, messing everything up ends up costing him his life. That's why he gets crucified. But that's the type of praxis that I'm, that I'm basically talking about. Um, we have created a society where we have to go to the police department to get a permit from the police department so that we can protest the police department for police brutality. In other words, we created safe spaces where we can protest and, you know, and feel good about ourselves and get our liberal credentials. But nothing changes. So to screw with the systems, to Jorel, is to find ways of literally upsetting the apple cart 
to see what may happen. And I'm, and I'm relying here on the trickster image or the trickster I, I'm thinking, which Christianity has lost, but is very, is very much part of the biblical text, I believe. Um, in the Latinx culture and the African American culture and several many Asian cultures, you always have these trickster images that exist as part of life. Westerners really kind of lost that. They used to have it, but it's been really, you know, you know, it's all that's satanic and therefore right. it's evil. But and, there's a difference between between tricksters and villains. And villains, you know what I right? Mean? Like that's those are two different archetypes, right? Yeah. So I'm so so, so this ethics by the is, is a trickster base ethics because what the trickster does is that it creates new situations awkward situations problematic situations that forces people to really deal with what's actually going on sure so how do you lie to find out what the truth is Mm -hmm. how do you steal so that people can have a fair distribution of wealth right you know so, so these are the type of ethical issues that I'm wrestling with because to follow the rules to follow what we have declared to be moral, uh, we have to ask who wrote those rules? You know, who is declaring what is moral? And it's those that have the power to make those rules. So as long as I play by the rules, I will always be in a subservient position. You know, so I love when doing the debates last night, Donald Trump is demanding uh, law and order. You know, um, and as the African community said many times before, whose law and whose order? Because the law and order that exists is what's killing us, killing us, those who are people of color. Sure. So something I, I think is really fascinating here is typically we view the image of God as orderly or um, like the idea of law and order we tend to attribute mm-hmm. to God and the, and the trickster we tend to associate with Satan. Right. Um, and when you have Satan tempting Jesus in the desert, um, really, Satan is the orderly one. He's saying, hey, I have have all this stuff figured out. You know, s- submit to me, and and you can have everything. And Jesus kind of returns from the wilderness and as, as this trickster figure. And I think that's really fascinating. And I've never, hmm. never thought about it in that light until you just said yes. that. And I think that's really interesting. Yes, yes. No, I think, I mean... Satan, as the personification of pure evil, was really a theology that, that, that's developed after the Babylonian captivity. Before that, I mean, well, Satan only appears like in three books in the Hebrew Bible and only appears like seven times. And it usually appears in a very positive light. It's one of the, in the chain, it's in the council of God, it's not, there's no hell. But then we have a problem with the Hebrew text. And that is, you have verses like in Isaiah that says, um, if good or evil enters into the city, isn't that I, the Lord your God, who brings it? And then you have God who is sending evil spirits onto um, Saul. So that's not the kind of God that we are yeah. supposed to be following that's pure good. Right. Who brings evil to a city or who right. sends evil spirits to, to torment its chosen. It opens uh, up the question of who is God. And, right. You know, now, for many Jews, God has a dark side. But what, what, what had to happen is that we had to save God from God, and therefore we invented Satan. And all the evil is, comes from Satan. And, and what I want to argue is that Satan is probably more trickster than the personification of evil. Because going back to that story, 
of uh, the temptation in the um, in the desert. At the end of the temptation is when Jesus figures out what his ministry is. That's when the ministry begins. You know, so in a way, Satan helps Jesus figure out his ministry. Well. But if we see Satan as the personification of evil, which, you know, really becomes a, a medieval construction of what Satan is, which is so ingrained in us that there's no other way we could think of Satan, then, then he beca- then it becomes then what I'm saying becomes very problematic. Right. So then you get order and right. chaos. And you have chaos, chaos is bad, 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 bad. Right. Yeah. And what I'm arguing is if we go back to a Hebrew text understanding of Satan, um, then we, we we have something to play with. Yeah. And in that playing, um, it is the chaos that, that that brings salvation to those who are oppressed. And that's where we see God creating at the beginning, hovers over the chaos. Yes. Yeah, we yes, don't like exactly. to talk about that much, do we? No, no, in Christian circles. Well, right, and Jesus having to die before coming back as God. I mean, you yeah. know, the whole thing, destruction, chaos. So yeah. Let's talk more about Jesus here, because you stated in your book that Jesus was a troublemaker, an instigator of conflict, and a disruptor of unity. We may argue that Jesus abhors violence, but it would be simplistic to argue that he was a pacifist. Now, this, like other things, flies in the face of Western Christianity and even a lot of my Anabaptist gleanings, and I know some of this is a response to Yoder, yes. some of your work. So how did you how did you come to that conclusion? What do you have to say to the Anabaptist, uh, Hauerwasian, Yoder people yeah. of the world? I would say that they... Yeah. The, let me back up. Is that is that those names? Yeah. Yoder and Anabaptist for you? Oh, yeah, no, that's all good. And okay. That, you know, and we were talking a little bit before the interview, too, just yeah. this notion of... There's, there can be all this evidence. You look at the Bible verses yeah. and it's all about, yes, there's some, you know, there's the trickster image and there's the yeah. sword and there's the division. But, but by gosh, you know, at the end of the day, Jesus, Jesus was a peacemaker. He was a yeah. prince of peace. So yeah. what about peace? Yeah. 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 So that, that's a big part of the Yoder Anabaptist movement. Right. Sorry. I, I just wanted oh. to, I didn't want to, <laughs> yeah. also for the listeners, for like, the what's listeners, he talking yes. about? Harawas and Yoder. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Yoda looks at the Bible and discovers a Jesus who happens to be a pacifist Mennonite. Was he a pacifist Mennonite? Himself? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Well, so, so basically, you read yourself into the biblical text. We all do this. We all approach the Bible from our social location. The difference between Yodo and Hawass and myself is that they don't admit it, and I do. Um, when I read the text, I'm reading it as a Latinx um, kid from the slums of New York City. My context. That's how I. That those are the eyes that I have. Sure. And I read myself into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, what Yoda and Hogwarts do instead is that they confuse their context with universal truth. Mm. So the Jesus that they describe becomes the Jesus for everyone else. Right, and that's a very like Western concept. Yes. And post-colonialism seeks to go back to the subjective and the importance of individual stories and. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. And not that my interpretation of Jesus is correct. However, the liberationists would say that there is an epistemological privilege mm-hmm. towards the oppressed. That means that as the oppressed not only understand the Jesus of the dominant culture, because they have to live in that culture, but they also understand the Jesus of their own culture, which is uh, subjugated to the dominant culture. And they have a better grasp of, of, of reality because they could see both sides of the same coin. While the Yodas and the Hawas of the dominant culture only see Jesus through one lens. 
So it's not that I'm correct, but at least I would argue that I understand where they're coming from, and here's a different perspective to counter that. So, so saying all that, um, when I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at a Jesus who's a Latino um, from from the slums, and therefore the stories are read differently. Sure. You know, um, Cesar Chavez said, um, I am not a nonviolent man. I am a violent man trying to be nonviolent. And in a way, I kind of see Jesus that way also. Mm. I mean, because at the end of the day, when you get to, you know, if you, if, you read the, if, you, if you rush to the end of the story and read the book of Revelation, you have Jesus coming on a horse and the blood of everybody's up to the saddle and he has a sword and he's massacring, you know. That's not exactly all that peace-loving to me. That, that's a very warrior Jesus. Um, and, you know, the stories of, you know, the disciples saying, um, we have two swords, you know, is not enough? And he goes, no, if you, you know, have a cloak, sell it and buy a sword. If we were to translate that to today, it would be, you know, sell your coat and buy a gun. You know, and, and, and that's, I find that troublesome. Now, I'm not advocating violence because Jesus said this, but I am now pushing back at Jesus sure. and trying to say, this part of the text I have problems with. And I'm not going to excuse Jesus. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. I'm not going to read my theology onto the text and say, oh, yeah, he's telling you to buy a gun, but he really is a peace lover. No, this is problematic. Right. And if we wrestle with the problematicness of the text, then it becomes real as opposed to blind doctrine. Yeah, because that was my next question. So then how does one reconcile the turn the other cheek, um, love God first, love thy neighbor second, and how does one reconcile? And what I'm hearing is that one doesn't. One lives in the tension between these errors. So here's here's my tension because I I do have tension, and I've said to many people, like, my Anabaptist roots are coming out now. This is probably... (laughs) And I'm recognizing that. Okay, I'm reading myself into the text, and it's reading this up into me, and... But when, in that same scene about, you know, that is enough, when the disciples are ready before the Garden of Gethsemane, when the whole thing goes down, and then, you know, they have swords and they're ready to fight. And Peter does fight and he cuts off someone's ear, but then there's Jesus and he says, oh, you know, those who live by the sword die by the sword. So that's that, that's the trajectory of that context. So then what do you, how do you speak into that? Because that's my pushback. Yeah. That, that's all. But who is Jesus talking to? And is he saying it's a good thing or a bad thing no, no, to live and die by the sword? Who, who is he talking to when he says that? He's uh, whoever's there, his disciples? No, he's talking to the people with the swords. But even his own boys have he sword. He has one sword, but he's talking to the empire. Okay. He's telling the empire, those who have died, you know, live by the sword. Because the empire is living by the sword. Yes. Not his disciples. The empire is, is the one that's living, living by the by. sword. They come with the swords to arrest Jesus. And through the sword, they're subjugating Judea. This is the mm-hmm. post-colonial yeah. reading of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he says, those who die by the sword, those is Rome. Rome is the one that's living by the sword. They're the one that's going to die by the sword. Yeah. So, it, you know, again, but what we do is that we... Instead, focus that he must be talking to the one disciple who just happens to have a sword. And that's, and that's, that's how I've read it for many years. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but, but, but the those is not the he. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the those is the Roman Empire. Okay, so then taking this into even modern context mm-hmm. or even, you know, previous modern context where you have 
So within like the Black Liberation Theology mm-hmm. movement with MLK and Malcolm X, and then you have there's a tension there mm-hmm. of those who follow one is it's a violent protest, mm-hmm. and the other one is violent, but it's it's a it's a peaceful violent. Mm-hmm. So the followers of MLK would be more peaceful compared mm-hmm. to Malcolm X. So and I know that you uh, I mean you studied all this mm-hmm. and and how this applies to current modern day events mm-hmm. that are going on because you have mostly mostly white people on Facebook and Twitter who are railing against the protesters today. Mm-hmm. Why can't you be more like MLK? Yeah. Why not? I mean, why you got to be like Malcolm X? Yeah. And that's, a, of course, a privileged thing to say. Yeah. I know. But let's also remember one thing. Malcolm X wasn't all that violent. He, he did a great talk, but he was never engaged in any violent acts. No, uh, his followers, the Nation of Islam, were engaged in any violent act. So much so that the reason you have the rise of the Black Panther um, carrying the AK-47s was a response of saying, you know what, we, we, need to take this, we need to take this seriously. And even they weren't engaged in violence. They were just massacred by the FBI, um, you know, to, to, to end that movement. So when we talk about violence, it's really a perception during the civil rights movement than an actual tool that was being used. And when there was violence, it was usually um, it was usually internalized in burning down one's own cities or one's own communities, uh, you know, out of self-rage, um, which, which again, we're good. But, 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 but James Cone writes this tremendous book um, called Martin Malcolm, The Dream and the Nightmare. And, and what he argues in the book is that you have to have a Malcolm X with the threat of violence so people will listen to an MLK. Because if you don't have that threat of violence, those in power are not going to care. Now, the way I learned this lesson, when I was in Mexico, I I was speaking to a Chiapa rebel, and he was telling me that when he uh, went to the bureaucracy to protest the seizing of his land, they looked at him and said, ah, you smelly Indian, get out of here. So he showed up the next day with a bandana and AK-47, and he told me, you know what? They listened to me. They actually took the time to hear what I was saying. And it's that threat of violence yeah. that causes uh, those in power to have to pause and listen. Now, again, I'll go back to Cesar Chavez. I am not a violent, I'm not a nonviolent man. I am a violent man trying to be nonviolent. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I want to at least recognize that in that tension is where I live. Cal, we were talking about that the other night. Yeah, so this this brings up a question for me in, in regards to the ethics of Pada Hoder, which is something I'm I'm super fascinated with. Mm-hmm. Um, is what is what does that look like in practice? Okay. Um, and so one of the things that keeps coming up recently is the uprising in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, where I I constantly see um, white liberals criticizing um, people of color who are taking the streets, who are smashing windows in, you know, buildings and things like that. Um, and it's, it's typically the, the white middle-class community that responds with, this is violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the overwhelming response from the people in these communities tends to be, well, this is nothing compared to the violence that, that I, you know, endure every single day. Mm. Um, so... One, one of the questions that I have, it's kind of off topic from this, but relevant, is who defines what is violent and what is not violent, um, and in what context? And I, and I think that kind of brings it back around to what, is, what does it look like to um, mess with the, the system or be, to be a trickster 
um, in these in these situations. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and, I, and I, I'm hearing two or three questions there, mm-hmm. quite frankly, and which and all of them are very important. So I want to begin with maybe the violence. Um, I, I find that when we talk about nonviolent, I can't help but see that mostly white liberal males are the ones talking about nonviolent, while ignoring the institutionalized violence that is occurring. So looking at Charleston, we're saying, how dare they be that violent, but never really talk about the violence of of shooting and killing black young men by police literally almost every other day. That's also violence. But we don't talk about that violence. When we talk about nonviolence, we're only talking about the violence of those folks, those people, not the violence that we're complicit with. So to begin that whole conversation of nonviolence, um, those in power have really lost the moral right and authority to define violence and what violence is because of their complicity with the continuous violence. And not just African-American men, and obviously women as well as we see in several cases, but every four days, five brown bodies die in the desert entering this country. That could be preventable. Every four days, five bodies, I mean, every five days, I'm sorry, every four days, five brown bodies die. And that's a violence we don't even hear about or even know about. So when we talk about violence, I want to really focus on that institutional violence. Um, who gets to say when we're going to be violent? Uh, part of the ethics by the Hodet is based on several principles, which I outline in, in a book called um, Latino Latina Social Ethics. And one of the principles, it has to be communal. I cannot determine it's now time for me to do violence. Because, as you know, and, and, and part of um, the whole liberations movement is that we're trying to move away from the salient individualism of West, Western culture. So any decision for violence or lack of violence is done by the community together, wrestling with the issue. So how does it look like Chiapas? Uh, the Chiapas rebels will say, we have determined not to engage in violence for this time period. We may pick up violence in the future. We will decide at that point and we'll let you know. That's a good example of who determines the violence. It is the community as a whole, together. Mm-hmm. Now, that may sound, how do you get a community together? But you, you, know, you, you need to have the conversations and you need to have the move, you know. Now, the other question that, that I heard in all that is, you know, how does this all look like? Um, when I began to develop this ethics, but I heard it, I was invited to... Um, to Tucson, Arizona, to talk to humanitarian groups working with um, um, individuals crossing the desert. So no more deaths, border links, uh, hum- uh, um, Samaritans, um, and a few other groups. And I presented this ethics by the Hored, and many of the leaders adopted this as their methodology by which to do work. Uh, John Fife, who um, is known for one of the co-founders of the sanctuary movement back in the 80s, um, said that what the ethics by the Hoda does for him, it, it liberates him from having to solve the problem. Now he could just screw with the system, which is the job of every Christian. 
you know, these are his words. And so what they did, you know, what, what they began doing things is like him and a bunch of pastors at the last Operation Streamline, that's the court procedure that convicts the undocumented, you know, seven of them in like two minutes. It's a, a, like a meat mock, I mean, a, an assembly line justice. Um, doing that, all the pastors started standing up and praying for the injustice that they were witnessing. That's screwing with the system. A bunch of the, a bunch of them also tied themselves to the wheels of the trucks that were bringing them for trial. Again, that's screwing with the system. Now, I'm not saying that aha they discovered this and they started doing this because I spoke. What I'm saying, this was always there. They were always screwing with the system. I just gave it some words to help understand. Um, understand it better and to have an ethical foundation by which to do it. Right. So I have a question about the, the ethics of Parvada. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking the trickster role here mm -hmm. for just a second. I'm going to play the devil's advocate, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I think we started the discussion by saying Jesus was a trickster. Mm -hmm. He upturned the system. He messed with people. But then Jesus got crucified. That was at the end of that yeah. conversation. And yeah. so, so the question is, is it ethical for people, especially people who are unprivileged by the system, deprivileged by the system, is it ethical to advocate them to be that trickster and potentially get crucified, yeah. um, depending, I mean, I would certainly hope not, you know, I have, maybe I'm not, I'm still bought into that hope situation, yeah. but, but potentially. One of the other things I've been working on in, in, in a book I, I just finished on immigration is what I call an ethics of place. That means solidarity with the oppressed, meaning uh, means occupying the same space as they do. So when the result is crucifixion, and many times it is, um, your body has to be in solidarity in the same space as those who are being crucified. It's not, you guys go ahead, you know, and I'll, I'll stay here and write books. It, it means... I have to be in the same space with them when oppression is occurring. Um, and yes, people will get crucified, but here's the one thing about power. No one has ever given up, given up their power without blood flowing. Every time there's been a power shift, people die. And usually the people who die are the most oppressed of the oppressed. No one has ever said, you know, I have too much power. Here, let me share some with you. It's never happened in history. So when I'm calling for liberation, and don't forget, I am a violent man trying to be nonviolent, okay? As I call for liberation, I also know I am calling for even greater violence. But then again, violence, as I said, is already occurring. I mean, they're already kill killing brown bodies or dying in the desert. Black bodies are dying. And it comes a point when you say basta, enough. Hmm. And when you say enough, it's like we're going to die anyway. At least let us die fighting for something that might save our children or our grandchildren. So, so when you talk about your ethics of place, um, it reminded me, I, I recently read um, an article by um, POC anarchists who were critiquing the what they called the ally industrial complex, mm -hmm. um, where... Um, uprisings like what's happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm -hmm. what happened in Ferguson, things like that. Um, what tends to happen is you have people who say, well, outsiders come in and they instigate violence, and that's what happened. The people here really don't want that. Mm -hmm. 
And what they were saying is, no, we were the people on the front lines throwing Molotov cocktails, throwing rocks at cops. And we were, the people who joined us weren't the ones instigating it. They were the ones following our lead. Mm-hmm. They were the ones occupying that same space that we were occupying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's really interesting to think about when, when the, the Eurocentric ethical paradigm tends to rise up in us where we're like, no, 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 no. This is, this is violent. This is not a, at all what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so what does it look like to occupy that space with people who are oppressed who are actively engaging the system, actively engaging the powers around them, uh, without imposing yeah. Eurocentric ethical paradigms on them. Or appropriating the movement and making it into our own image. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is co-opting the movement. So that, you know, I mean, let's not forget that the civil rights movement was not about voting rights. It was also about equal distribution of wealth. Yeah. But when it became political, it became only about voting rights. Remember, because Martin Luther King was going to do the Poor People's March. I mean, he was going to push. We were talking in Congress about having a minimum salary for every American when they pay their taxes, uh, and, that, and that died. Um, but what you know, by, by co-opting it, we, we, we just made it about voting. And by just making it about voting, of course, what we know now is you could gerrymander votes so that it could be ineffective, or you could buy off votes. Um, So, to be an ally is to avoid those tendencies of becoming the leaders of a movement that we're not part of. Um, Allies are needed. I I always laugh every once in a while, a couple of um, white, you know, some of my white island students will come to me and say, well, we're going to go get arrested and protest this. And I'm like, you know, I'm a Latino, I don't need to go get arrested. You know, it just comes naturally to my people. We're always being harassed and arrested. Um, when I, when I, the idea that it's not a threatening, yeah, or it's a it's a safe experience. Yeah, because they'll not, go, yeah. they'll protest, they'll pay their the the bail money, they get out, and they got their liberal credentials. I've been arrested, you know. But for me, that's not the way it works usually. When I was detained, I was detained a few times by, um, specifically the Border Patrol, I did everything I could to talk my way out of getting arrested, and I did. I don't want to be arrested because the money that's spent now to, you know, to, for me to go through court systems and, to, and for me to go, all that money could be used for the movement. And instead it's now going to me so I could get my liberal credentials. So how can I be an ally without co-opting the movement? And, and that's basically by just being present and saying, what do you need me to do? And many times what needs to be done is for me to speak to other individuals um, uh, you know, within my own social group and, and, and get them to be supportive. This has been great. Great. Thank Heavy. you so much for your time. Yeah. Oh, time's up. Oh, wow, we've been talking for an hour. We're going we're gonna to do a lightning round, which lightning round, you know, got to go quick. On the, okay, quick. Yeah. So how about this? this well, this is, whew, it's heavy. This, <laughs> heavy. this next question is light. Very light. Oh. <laughs> but it's a tough one. Favorite food, drink, combo? Favorite food, drink, combo? Uh, paella with red wine. Oh All right. All right, so favorite era of history? Favorite era of history. Um, I love them all. That, that, that's a hard one. Um, favorite era. The now. Nice. Least favorite. Least favorite. Any, anything before antibiotics. 
Favorite book in the Bible? Favorite book in the Bible would be Amos, the prophet of doom. Hmm. Least favorite? J- uh, Joshua, kill everything that lives. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> God committing genocide, yes. <laughs> A lot of theological gymnastics there. That's for another discussion. <laughs> so favorite theologian? Favorite theologian, Gustavo Gutierrez. Least favorite theologian. Is this off the record? This, this, oh, wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Least favorite theologian. You don't have to answer it. Yeah, I think I'll skip that one. Okay. <laughs> favorite political candidate. Oh, my God. Favorite political candidate. None at this point. Least favorite. Matter of fact, I wrote a, I just wrote a, a, a quick uh, article talking about holding my nose and voting for Clinton. <laughs> so I know who the least favorite is. The least favorite, definitely Trump. I mean, yeah, I, I can't. I, and I don't even take that back. The least favorite are the deplorables who are supporting Trump. Yeah. All right. Last question. Easy, fun. This is a tough one, too. If you could have dinner with three people throughout the history of the world, who would they be? Real people or not real people? No, they have to be real. Okay. Real people. Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha. Great. That would be a fun conversation. <laughs> it would be fun. And that's what we do every single week at Denver Pub Theology. So if you're listening right now, we're at the pub every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. So thank you, uh, Dr. Miguel. You've been thank you for a having blast. Me. This is a pleasure. Wait, before we, before we stop, uh, though... I want to give him the floor to, is there anything that you're working on right now um, that you would like people to know? Or well, like I said, I, I just finished a book on uh, uh, theology of hope. I mean, embracing the hopelessness, but I'm about to be, I received a grant from the Louisville, uh, from the Louisville Institute uh, to do a book on the political theology of Jose Mati. And Jose Mati has been my intellectual mentor. And you could add him as one of the three to enjoy me, uh, to have a uh, dinner with. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Cheers, you. everybody.